So about a month ago, Sarah and I went to Ohio to visit some uh, just longtime friends. And my friend Kenny is uh, into construction. He's into uh, remodeling. That's kind of been a second career of his. And they recently uh, bought a property that they have fixed up for themselves, for their family. They have children, they have grandchildren, they have great-grandchildren. And they have uh, created a property that is almost like a magnet for all of their family to come and to gather. And as we were on the back porch, uh, I was looking at uh, the property that he had uh, remodeled for his family, I looked around and I said, where did you get, where did you get all this? Where did you get all this? He said, well, when I go to these jobs, my clients say, you know, rip that fence out. Well, there's nothing wrong with the fence. They just want a new fence. And so I just, I just keep it because they don't want it. And they just need someone to take it away. And so we're talking about fences. We're talking about just portions of houses. And, and um, what Ken has done is he has just, like a mosaic, put together a piece of art. And painted it and fashioned it and shaped it. And he just has that eye. Whether it's a fence, whether it's landscaping stones, you name it, it's there, and it looks like art. It's amazing. If you'd left it alone by itself, it'd just be a mess, just a mess. But in the hands of a, a master carpenter, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful, and it's a place of community and family and love. Now, that reminds me of what I want to talk to you about today, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness. See, our lives often look like those pieces that those clients don't want. And they get placed there in a pile, and it, all by itself, it's tattered. All by itself, it's a mess. But you put it in the hands of a master carpenter. And what is a mess becomes a masterpiece. By the grace of the master carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? Now, we have been studying here in this past month a series called the gospel according to Satan. And I put that words in quotes because Satan has no good news. He just wants you to make you think that he has good news. And we're going to talk about the need for forgiveness and how forgiveness deconstructs Satan's lie, his deception about resentment. Forgiveness is the hardest thing you will ever do. 
And that's why most people don't do it. I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis, who gave us the Chronicles of Narnia. He once said, everyone says that forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And then to mention the subject at all is to be greeted with howls of anger. So I want us to consider Satan's lie today and deconstruct that lie. Uh, in the past several weeks, we've talked about several of Satan's lies. Uh, the lie that Satan does not exist. That's a lie. He would love for you to believe that he doesn't exist. Uh, the lie, you can be like God. That's Genesis chapter 3. The lie that says, just follow your heart. Follow your, don't follow your heart. Lead your heart to Jesus and follow Jesus. And then last week we talked about shame. How, how Satan would love to just for you to just dwell in shame. And we, and we deconstructed that from Zechariah chapter 3 of the Old Testament. But today, we're going to consider one of Satan's most cunning lies. And it is the lie of justified resentment. The lie of justified resentment. If you have your Bibles, would you please meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I want you to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth concerning this deception. It, 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 you won't find it overtly mentioned in these verses, but you need to read, be able to, to appropriately read between the lines. Hear now these words from 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. The Apostle Paul says, Now if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted. That word means defrauded or scammed or taken advantage of. By Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Literally, literally, for we are not unmindful of his mind. This is the word of God. So, so did you detect the deception kind of embedded in these verses? Do you hear the lie here? Satan not only seeks to entice us to do evil against the Lord, he seeks to inhibit us from doing good in the name of the Lord. The, the accuser who stands ready to prosecute your smallest infractions against God's kingdom is the same accuser 
who is recruiting you to prosecute others for their infractions against your kingdom. In other words, what I'm saying is that Satan runs a law firm and he's recruiting associates. And here's his motto. His motto is this. You have the right to your resentment. That's what he's saying here. And I want to just deconstruct that deception here this morning. And, and beloved, here's why this matters. Um, I'll just cut to the chase. How are we different from the world? How, how is our church community, the 600 who make up the body of Christ who gather at Windsor Road, when, when, when unbelievers witness our lives, how, how are we different from the world? What, what is winsome and attractive about our community to the world? See, and, and when unbelievers, when unbelievers witness entrenched resentments that believers have about you name it, what else are they going to conclude other than, well, that's just one more reason why I don't need their Jesus. So these, these verses challenge us here. I, I, think, uh, I think St. Augustine of old, Augustine of Hippo, he was a pastor in northern Africa 1,600 years ago. I think he was on to something when he said, if you suffer from a bad man's injustice, forgive him, lest there be two bad men. Hmm? That'll preach. Yeah. So, so our words and our behaviors need to say to those who are looking at our lives, we're different only by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God. And so, so this church does not belong to the city of man. We belong to the city of God because we're friends of God. We're friends of God. And um, on the next page in 2 Corinthians, if we were to study it, we would see in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. So this is an embassy. And if we will pay attention to the wisdom of our text today, then here's what's going to happen. We will show our Champaign-Urbana community that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is real and true and eternal and satisfying, okay? Satisfying. So here's what I want us to do today as we consider these verses. Um, let's just situate these verses in their original context. What was going on that led Paul to say what he said in 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11? What's the context? What? Okay, then, uh, then we'll talk about what the deception is and the significance of it. And, and, and uh, what does Satan do to outwit us? What does he do to outwit us, right? So what? And then, and then now what? What's the take-home truth? So this is a what, so what, now what? sermon. Let's start with the what. What's the context? Well, in these verses, Paul writes uh, to a situation that emerged from the church at Corinth. Now, a church member had caused a great deal of trouble and had divided the church. Now, now when we often think about church here, we often just think about our own context 
and uh, you know, 10 acres, worship center, a large congregation, multiple staff. That's not what this was. This was a house church. So we're talking about probably 40 or 50 people meeting in a home, and there may have been other house churches in Corinth, but the size dynamic was probably about 40 or 50, because that's how many could fit in the house. All right, And so the repercussions of disruptive behavior would have been felt far more in a smaller dynamic than in a larger dynamic. All right, So, so then what exactly was this disruptive behavior? Well, uh, for about 1,800 years, most Bible scholars thought that the disruption was tied, and I want you to just write this down, you can look it up later, to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5. What was happening in 1 Corinthians 5? Oh, my goodness. A guy was sleeping with his father's wife. All right? That's what was going on. Okay? And here's what else was going on. Nobody was saying anything. Nobody was saying anything. Now, you know, that kind of awkwardness might be diluted in a large group like this. Okay, at least for a little while. But in a group of 40? I mean, the, the ripple effect and just the, the uh, it was just, I mean, and then they were tolerating the guy's shenanigans. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, the Corinthians aren't even doing this. How can you do this? How can you be tolerating that which the world doesn't tolerate? You're just smug about this. You're arrogant about this. In more recent times, other Bible scholars have proposed other ideas, such as, no, it wasn't that. Uh, somebody in the church was challenging the Apostle Paul's leadership, even going so far as to standing up in the middle of the house church and confronting the Apostle Paul to his face. And, and, and still others had to do, uh, said that the disruption had to do with stolen offering money meant to advance Paul's mission. So, which is it? I can confidently say, I don't know. I, mean, I don't. We, we, do, we don't. We don't really know, okay? Um, what we do know was its effect on the church. It was fracturing the community. So Paul challenged the house church to act. He said, you've got a wolf in the sheep's pen. Remove the wolf until he repents. And so they did. They, they, they actually excommunicated him. Meaning, meaning he may have been barred from communion. Uh, he may have been disinvited to the church community meals. Um, he may have been uninvited from worship. All right. Uh, now, some of you might think, well, that's really heavy-handed, and I understand that. Um, let me ask this question. Under what circumstances would you invite a guest, uh, excuse me, under what circumstances would you disinvite a guest from your home? Okay. Uh, when should a student be removed from a classroom? Teachers? When should a family member be removed from the home? Okay? And answers will be something like, well, 
when they obstruct the learning of others or when they pose a threat to themselves, when they pose a threat to others. And so, so we're not talking about a delicious sense of revenge. We're not talking about an authoritarian power play. We're speaking of a community's health and well-being. We're talking about, we're talking about doing a very hard thing with grieving and with tears, okay? And that's what they did. Now, in an individualistic culture like ours, the wrongdoer may not even feel affected by it, you know? Our consumerist culture might lead a wrongdoer to go someplace else. However, in a communal culture, in a group culture, in a culture of networks, which is what this was, uh, where your relationships meant something, being excommunicated had costly consequences. And such that this wrongdoer actually repented. That's what Paul says here. The pain, verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, uh, pain brought by brazen sin, followed by a congregational reprimand, that's verse 6, was followed by sorrow from the offender, verse 7, so, so Paul speaks of the avoidance of excessive sorrow, meaning that this wrongdoer repented and expressed sorrow. And, and then that was followed by an appeal to forgiveness and comfort and love, verse 8. So, so whatever the sin was, whatever the wrongdoer did, the church came to this juncture of extending forgiveness and comfort to one who is, who is in this case, genuinely sorry. I want you to see that, okay? So, but here it's at this very juncture, stay with me, at this very juncture, Paul says we must take care lest we find ourselves unmindful of Satan's mind. Well, what's in Satan's mind? It's this. He wants you to indulge your grudge. He wants you to believe that you have the right to your resentment. The, the wrongdoer's actions had offended Paul, had offended the, the individual involved, had offended the church community, caused a lot of damage. People ended up taking sides. Remember, in, in this smaller dynamic where you can really feel the, the waves of dissent, and some said, oh, just let it go, let live and let live, let live and let live. Others said, no, well, this, what he did wasn't right, and there's, there's division. And so beforehand, Satan was gaining the upper hand because the church was tolerating flagrant brazen sin and Paul said you must not ignore wrongdoers who are damaging the community protect the flock do the right thing they did and the wrongdoer changed now on the other hand the temptation is well how do we know he's really sincere I mean, what if he's just saying he's sorry just so he can weasel his way back into the community how can we really trust him to which Paul says look he's apologized he's made amends now I want us to turn and forgive and comfort him. Love compels us to take the risk. Okay. Verse 7 says, lest he be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And then verse 10 says, this is so remarkable, church. Paul says in verse 10, look, anyone whom you have forgiven Literally, it says this. Anyone whom you have forgiven, I too 
Well, I, th- I think that's really remarkable because Paul is saying, uh, Paul, Paul is saying, the Apostle Paul, who started the church, said to the church, I will follow your lead. Hmm? I will follow your lead. I, I, had, I had challenged you to confront the wrongdoer to see if you were serious about being a holy congregation, and now I want to challenge you to be a gracious congregation by forgiving the remorseful wrongdoer. And Paul says, if you're good, I'm good. And Christ is our witness. That's behind the phrase, for your sake in the presence of Christ. Jesus Christ himself bears witness to the churches, his churches, supernatural display of grace. Wow. To what end? To what end? So that we would not be outwitted or defrauded or swindled by Satan. So, so the word outwitted implies treachery or cunning, which leads us to the second question. Here's the, here's the so what. How, so, so how might Satan outwit us? By convincing us that we have the right to our resentment, that, that, that we have grudge-bearing privileges. Someone offends you deeply, and your inner lawyer rises. Do you see how that person hurt you? Why would you make yourself vulnerable again? Haven't you forgiven enough? Haven't you forgiven enough? All right, let's lean into that for just a moment here. Let's lean into that here. Well, so, so why does your inner lawyer rise? Why? Well, um, well, it may be because you have a God-given sense of justice. And, and, and that's a good thing. And you've been wronged, and you, who have been created in God's image, and therefore endowed with a rightly functioning sense of justice and morality, you cry out for justice. The, the playing field needs to be leveled. Fairness demands it. Yes, yes. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Because you have a moral compass, because you, because you have a moral compass, you know you can't go Batman all over them even though you'd like to. Okay? So what happens? Instead of doing something externally to harm them, you do something internally to harm them. You harbor bitterness. You exercise emotional punishment toward them internally when actual punishment can't be exercised externally. You set up a court of law in your heart, and I say you, I should say we. I should say me. I set up, because I've never lost an argument with someone in my mind. Hmm? Yeah, I'm, I'm, re- I'm that good. Yeah, 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 help me Jesus. But I set up this court of law in my heart since an actual court is unfeasible. See, see that's, the lot, that's the psychology of resentment. But here's what happens. The bitterness that I harbor, the resentment that I hold, the emotional punishment that I inflict on that other person in my heart has the exact opposite effect more than I think. Because my resentment does absolutely nothing to the offender. 
while it quietly yet unquestionably eats me alive like a termite. And the victims of my resentful anger fantasies, they don't feel a thing. They're just living their life. They're not even thinking about me. I'm the one being hollowed out by resentment. I think that's why Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by, by it many become defiled. Wow. So, so the grace of God protects us from resentment's rot. Satan's name means accuser. And, and that's what he does. That's all he does. All throughout the day and into the night, the accuser is accusing. He didn't do enough. He didn't serve enough. He didn't love enough. He didn't care enough. Or you did, but you didn't do it with the right motive. So how can you possibly, how can you possibly get up and preach in front of these people? Who do you think? You're a poor excuse for a pastor. You're never going to get it right. You deserve what you get. You're a failure. That voice is the voice of the accuser, and it's just a loop that goes on over, over, over again. Accusing is who Satan is, uh, and accusing is what Satan does. That's his gospel, and that's no good news. But I'm going to tell you Christ's good news. It's in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, when Paul says, And you who were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, all, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross in other words church family god neutralized satan and all his armies with crucified love he's more aware of satan than anyone else and he knows how satan works god waged war against the prince of this world with the broken body and spilled blood of the prince of peace God chose in love to forgive us through Christ. I tell you, grace disarms the grudge. And that makes forgiveness an act of war against the evil one. Forgiveness poses an, an existential threat to Satan's existence. So, so, so for Satan, forgiveness, <laughs> for Satan... Forgiveness is like a prosecuting attorney showing up in court, arguing before the jury and judge, and the accuser just rants on and on and on. What about Randall? What about his sin? What about his failures? What about his shortcoming? What about, and then finally the judge interrupts and says, who are you talking about? There's no one at the defendant's table. It's empty. And God the Father, the only judge of heaven and earth and the only one whose judgments count declares 
Randall's not on trial. He's been acquitted and declared innocent by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Son. Case dismissed. Court is adjourned. Get out of here, Satan. Yeah, so, so forgiveness is kryptonite to Satan. If you want to see Satan's knees buckle, forgive someone their sins just as Christ forgave yours. And remember Jesus' words. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If, if we're too proud, if we're too bitter to hold out the hands of forgiveness, God will withdraw His. If we refuse to give forgiveness, if we refuse to give grace, he will hold our every sin against us until we can pay for them all. And who can do that? To withhold forgiveness is not only to join Satan in his wickedness, but it is to be left with Satan and his wickedness. Miserable, unforgiven, cast into outer darkness. And Paul says, I don't want that. I, 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 I do not want that. And, and so he wants to prevent an entire congregation, one that serves as the very presence of Christ in their godless culture. He, he wants to, to keep that entire congregation then and now from being collectively outwitted by the evil one. Beloved, we, there can be no spiritual caste system at Windsor Road Christian Church. There, 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 the organization is flat. Jesus and everybody else, okay, right, right, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and His family, and His family. Now what? Well, let's listen to the Apostle Paul. When someone is penitent, when someone is truly remorseful, here's what the Word says, verse 8, therefore I beg you to reaffirm your love to Him, in other words, in other words, Paul says, don't, you know, I don't, want, I don't want you to dwell on this incident. I don't want you to keep bringing this incident up again and again and again. I don't want you to gossip about this incident. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Wave the right to hurt those who hurt you. Wave the right to hurt those who hurt you. Um, Tim Keller uh, recently passed away, and uh, his last book was a book called On Forgiveness, and I highly recommend it. He defined forgiveness in a fourfold way. He said, first, forgiveness names the wrong as wrong and punishable, and, and so not just excuse it, okay? So, so when you forgive someone, there was something to forgive. There was a real wrong. Identify with the wrongdoer as a fellow sinner. Release the wrongdoer from liability by absorbing the debt oneself. And then, fourthly, aim for reconciliation and restoration, which implies a new relationship, a new relationship. So, so in other words, to kind of put that in a sentence, forgiveness has to do with renouncing resentment, okay, 
which is something that you can do unilaterally. At the same time, being open to reconciliation, which requires two, two parties, okay? And um, so what I'm going to say in the next three minutes, I took six weeks this past spring in a course on forgiveness. So I, I understand maybe what may be going on in some of our minds, like, yeah, but what about, yeah, but what about... So let me just say this, especially when there's been a criminal act involved. Justice is a function of the state to impartially enforce the law. So if there's been criminal activity, then there's, then there's business with the state. Okay? And we can personally show love even, even when the state needs to do its job to show justice. Okay? Also, from Keller's book, I learned that reconciliation is a process. And the speed and degree of reconciliation hinges on the nature and severity of the sin. And un until someone shows evidence of change, we ought not to extend trust. Okay? So to immediately reinstate trust to someone with no track record of change could very well enable further sin. And, and just because you don't have full trust in the wrongdoer doesn't mean you, you can't be in the process of reconciliation. Healing takes time. Healing takes time. Christian reconciliation never takes us back to where we were before. Reconciliation takes us to a new place, a place called grace. And that takes us to my big idea here before I sit down. Grace denies resentment's rights. Grace denies resentment's rights. You see, over in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that we're ambassadors for Christ. And for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're the righteousness of God because of Jesus. But that, that goes far beyond just being forgiven by God and then going on and living your life with a clean conscience. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. It's more than that. God's righteousness has restorative power. God's righteousness brings life and reconciliation and, 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 and so that means that we who have become righteousness, we are His means of manifesting His power to the world. So that when we walk into a room, God's righteousness walks in too. Because His Holy Spirit is indwelling us. And we, we are, we are choosing love. We are choosing wisdom. We're choosing discernment, and we're doing this because His Holy Spirit lives in and through us so that we can minister and serve the world because we've been given more than enough grace to keep for ourselves. We've been given grace to share. And so, by grace, we choose to share grace in Jesus Christ. We choose this. We choose this. Years ago, an army ranger uh, by the name of Tom Allen 
tells about his experience of watching uh, Steven Spielberg movie Saving Private Ryan. You remember that movie? Tom Allen, he was a former armor, army ranger. He said, I, really, I love that movie. Love, I, was really, I loved it until the last minute. Last minute. You may know the story. The rangers take Omaha Beach, and then you know, Tom Hanks' crew has this mission to go deep into enemy territory to, to save Private Ryan, saving Private Ryan. And they go through skirmish after skirmish, and some of the soldiers are killed along the way. And they finally get to where Private Ryan is holed up, and, and they say, come with us, we've come to save you. He says, I'm not going. I'm here to stay because there's a big battle coming up, and I'm not going to leave my men. If I do, they'll die. And, and so, so what do the rangers do? Well, they, well, we'll stay here and fight with you. So they all stay, and they fight, and it's gory, it's hard, and almost everybody dies. Tom Hanks dies in that movie. Sorry, it's been a long time. <laughs> Should have seen it by now. Matt Damon doesn't. Okay. It, yeah. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. Where was that? I just passed by. But, uh, so at the very end, you know, just before Tom Hanks expires, he says something to, to Matt Damon. You may, you may remember what he said? Earn this. Earn this. Right? <laughs> yeah. Earn this. And that's what made Tom Allen so mad. Because he's a ranger. He said, no army ranger would ever say earn this. And why? Because for the last 200 years, the ranger motto has not been earn this. For the last 200 years, it's been sua sponte. Sua sponte. I chose this. I volunteered for this. So when Private Ryan bent down, had Tom Hanks been a real ranger, he would have said, I chose this. This is free. You don't have to pay anything for this. I give up my life for you. And so when you look at the cross and you see our Savior hanging there, you do not hear him say from the cross, earn this. He says, I've given everything for you. Sua sponte. You don't have to pay for a thing. Now that's the gospel. Believe it.